Please be seated. I'm going to invite you right now to pull out that insert you find in the bulletin. Inside of the bulletin, there's a, a double-sided sheet. On one side, it'll have MPG, which stands for Memorize and Pray and Glorify. And what we want you to do is to take this home with you. Uh, on the other side of it is a sermon outline where you can make some notes of the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, some fill in the blank. But the MPG are some practical ways that you can take the sermon that we're going to be going through today and take it a little bit further down the road. We don't want God's Word just to be something for Sunday mornings. We want it to be for every day of our life. And we don't want it to be something just for our mind. We want it to be something for our entire life, our body, our actions, our, our value system, where we place our affections, our emotional life, all these kinds of things. We want God's Word to make its way into every part of our life. And uh, that is the MPG. I would encourage you to take some notes as well as we go through this message. We're in the third message of this series that I'm calling Undeniable. And it's based in Matthew chapter 5. This is the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has already gone through the Beatitudes when he tells people, as, as uh, Demetrius just read for us, that you are the salt and the light of the world. He is identifying, there is a metaphor that, or metaphors that he is giving us by which to identify and to understand what it means to live as his disciple in this world. To be salt and light is to have an undeniable character. Salt is salt, light is light. They can't be missed. The character of salt is to be an influencer. It changes everything. It affects everything that it touches. And it's the same with light. Light has as its character the ability to illuminate. It makes visible what is not visible. It, it allows you to see what otherwise might not be seen. And the salt in life lifestyle is a lifestyle about doing good. That's what makes it a beautiful life. In fact, at the end of that text that Demetrius read in verse 16, I'll read it again, Jesus is basically saying something very, very challenging for us to understand as Jesus' disciples in the 21st century. He says, In the same way, let your good deeds shine, to shine out for all to see, so that everyone who sees those good deeds, that sees a beautiful life, will praise your heavenly Father. Now, what is challenging about that is that we, we are to do our good deeds in such a way that we, you know, we're freed up from guilt and we're freed up from greed and we're, we're freed up from fear in order to be able to do these good deeds in such a way that God gets the glory and we don't necessarily get the thanks. The, the, the more we think about it, the more we begin to see then in doing it the Jesus way is that this is more than just doing a good deed every once in a while. And it's more than doing a good deed because it may reflect well on me. To live this kind of a life is to live a life that substantiates the claims of the gospel in the life of a human being. It's doing good as a way of life. The way that it was the way of life for Jesus. As Jesus' life is beautiful, so too our lives are to be beautiful. And the reason is this. It's hard to dispute a beautiful life. You can argue and argue and argue and argue, but the thing that stands out is the beauty of a human life as it is following in the footsteps of Jesus. That kind of beauty is undeniable. And that is the nature of beauty, right? Beauty is undeniable. It catches the eye. It grabs the attention. 
That kind of beauty is unforgettable. And I believe that one of the most beautiful things about the church of Christ is its koinonia. Now that's just uh, an ancient common Greek word that has come into the 21st century as sort of a technical word for this word fellowship. And if I were to give you a definition of koinonia, it would actually come from the title of a book that Scott McKnight wrote. And the title is, Koinonia is a Fellowship of Difference, with a T and an S at the end. Koinonia is a Fellowship of Difference. The church is a fellowship. It is a collective of people who really don't have any chance at all of being together or have any chance of really being united except that they are in Christ. Christian fellowship and Christian unity is more than just coexistence. It's more than just tolerating each other. It is a community that exists as the one body of Christ in the world because of this deep, deep, deep Christ-like love for one another. The church is like no other because of a love like no other. And that love is defined by a cross and an empty tomb. The very thing that pulls us together is far more beautiful and it is far more powerful than the very thing that would pull us apart. Now here's the thing. When people talk about Christians, and they talk, they talk about people like you and me, and sometimes it's outside the church, sometimes it's inside of the church, but very often we talk about the lives of disciples of Jesus of Nazareth as being counter-cultural. Ever hear that? And I get that, and listen, I don't want to make a big deal about it, but I would like for you to consider just for a moment that the, the opposite is actually true. The world as it is, the world that we live in, thus is the world, thus have we made it. The world as it is, fallen, is actually countercultural to the way that God created it in the first place. And the kingdom of God, as it is lived out in the lives of disciples of Jesus before the watching eyes of the world, is actually the right side up culture in an upside down world. Let me read that again. The kingdom of God, as it is actually lived out in the lives of disciples of Jesus, is really and truly the right-side-up culture in an upside-down world. The church's fellowship and the church's unity is a signpost of something extraordinary happening in the lives of the people who claim to live as disciples of Jesus. But that unity will always, always, always be challenged as long as we live in the world as it is. It is in the nature of fallenness. It's in the nature of sinfulness. For us as human beings to experience fragmenting and splintering and pushing away and separating, dividing, breakups, breakoffs, and breakdown. I mean, just to kind of you know, get our mind around this for just a second, here's a quiz. Question number one. When somebody gossips about another person, falsely spreads false and malicious information about that person, does that person, A, want to retaliate, B, stay as far away from that person as possible, C, hold a grudge for perhaps years, or D, 
all of the above. Second question. When someone dismisses you, they ignore you, couldn't give you the time of day, do you A, want to invite them to your birthday party, B, hang out with them at the local Starbucks, C, want to send them a Christmas card, or D, none of the above? And you get the idea. When somebody sins against us, or we sin against them, we are actually driving each other apart. Now, the unity of the church is a pretty big deal because it's a big deal because of what it says about the power and the purpose of the gospel. And this is one of the reasons why Paul is so disappointed in the church in Corinth. Although Corinth is a church that he planted, he loved the people there. It was a very dynamic church. In fact, in the first chapter, he's going to say that you've been blessed in all your knowledge and there's nothing that you lack. And yet he is disappointed in them because how it has split up into all of these personality cults. At the beginning of that letter, he talks about, hey, there are some there saying they're Paul and some saying they're of Jesus and some of Cephas and some of Apollos and all these different folks. And what Paul sees and what's happening in that church is they divide up over these personality cults is that the power of the gospel or the nature of the gospel is being diminished. And that's why at the very beginning of that letter he asks a rhetorical question. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And it wasn't just Corinth. There was a church in, on Crete, the island of Crete, that Timothy is ta- or, excuse me, Titus is taking care of. And Paul knows about some of the issues that are happening there. And he writes to Titus in Titus chapter 3, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such, a, that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Now, one of the things I just adore about our church family, and one of the things that I adore about our church, is how we are a fellowship of difference. We are such a different group of people, but we live in a time when the gospel-driven unity of the body of Christ is challenged. A fellow by the name of Arthur Brooke, kind of a public thinker sort, wrote a book several years ago called Love Your Enemies, and in citing from the Journal of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, he reports that there is this rising motive attribution asymmetry in our country, which means that there is... There is um, There's some unevenness in the way that we look at ourselves and the way that we look at other people. In other words, we're we're sort of growing in our ability to think more and more righteously about ourselves. That my opinion is right. What my thinking is right. Therefore, it is righteous. And your thinking, if I disagree with it, is wrong. And therefore, you are evil. That is growing in our country. And I think all of us have seen this and have experienced this. But in this journal that he cites, it says that the levels in the United States are getting to the level of Palestinians and Israelis in Israel. I'd like to say a couple of things this morning about navigating the political landscape in our country as a disciple of Jesus. 
And at the beginning, I, you know, I love both Republicans, I love Democrats, I love Libertarians, I love all people, I, lo- I love everybody. And I support your right to vote your conscience, and I encourage you to go out and vote. But my goal this morning in talking about all of this is this, that our fellowship, our koinonia, our fellowship of being different will always be deeper and richer and more profound with the people who share our faith and maybe not our politics than with the people who share our politics but not our faith. Our fellowship needs to be deeper with the people who share our faith and maybe not our politics than with the people who share our politics but not our faith. We are not a church that is represented by any political party. Last time I looked, it said Church of Christ on the the sign. And all of us, as a member of the body of Christ, we identify as sinners who are saved by grace. And that is the thing that draws us together and brings us together. And And it is in that grace that we have been saved, that we have been created for good works in Christ Jesus that God prepared beforehand. Can I say three things? I just want to say three very simple things this morning. And the first one is this. As we navigate the political world, let's remember that history is going somewhere. Let's remember that history is going somewhere. Many have said that unless we learn history, we are doomed to repeat it. I think if history tells us anything at all, it's that we keep making the same mistakes over and over again, even though we know very well and have documented our history. But what that tells us is that, well, it tells us a lot about the nature of fallen human beings. But we believe that history is not directionless. We believe that history has has a direction. We believe that, that human history is the stage for the unfolding of the drama of God's work. We believe history has a goal. We believe that direction has that that history has a direction and that one day history as we know it will have a climax. We believe in a God who in love sent His Son and in sending His Son demonstrated what a human life was designed by God to look like before it became marred by sin. And then at the end of that beautiful life to die on the cross providing our forgiveness and our our salvation and our transformation as human beings. And then three days later to resurrect from the dead which He shares with all people of faith And he said, one day he is going to return, and we believe that. But in the meantime, his followers are to be disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who are working together to make the world once again a God-honoring and a God-oriented and a God-saturated place. And one day, there will be a final judgment, and we believe that one day, there will be a resurrection. And on that day, at that climactic day, all the lies and the greed and the ugliness of wars and of prisons and confusions and oppressions and hostilities and contempts and diseases will be undone by the presence of Jesus. And all will be made right once again. 
and all tears, all tears, will be wiped away by God Himself. And there shall come a triumph of beauty and of truth and of goodness and glory, which no ear has yet heard or eye has yet seen. Even in the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, in the the Hebrew Scriptures, that great Old Testament prophet Isaiah saw it. In Isaiah chapter 2, He was looking toward that day where they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's at the very beginning of Isaiah. The last words of Isaiah go like this, chapter 65. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the serpent, and we all know the serpent... Its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Amen. Remember that history is going someplace. And that God is control of history. Number two, remember your life is bigger than your vote. Remember your life is bigger than your vote. I encourage you to vote your conscience. I encourage you to vote your conscience. But as Lee Camp has said, the faith of the Christian is the last great hope of earth. The faith of the Christian, the life of trusting God and how it points to the reality and the nature of God is the last great hope of earth. Your vote is your vote. Your vote is your vote. Vote. But let us never forget that the gospel is the power of God into salvation, and salvation is a really, really big deal. It is about redemptive love that comes into the life of a human being, freeing them up from their, their, their slavery to sin. It is about forgiveness. I mean, we human beings, their souls are just so filled with goo. And there is something in the power and the nature of the gospel where there is forgiveness and that redemptive love, where our consciences become clean and we're able to sleep at night. But it's also transformative, that forgiveness. And the reconciliation that we experience by becoming the children of God. You and I have been rescued by Jesus. In the end, there is a new life. And not just a new life, but a life that conquers death. There is a day where every person of faith, every disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, will overcome death. And that life that we know in the future is what we live in the present. And it becomes beautiful. And it becomes in the beauty of that life that the gospel is substantiated in sort of this undeniable way by the beauty of Christian living. And that's what Peter's trying to tell the church in the first century as it's living in the middle of the Roman Empire. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. And even though they're accusing of all of this you know, malicious stuff, they see the good deeds and they can't deny it. But they glorify God on the day He visits us. One chapter later, he says, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Make Him holy. Sanctify Him. 
Make Him separate. Make it stand out. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Because that's what He is. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The most important thing in the world when we're talking about people is that people embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in embracing, believing, trusting, being immersed into the gospel that that a human being is truly transformed. And the reason that your life is so important to what happens to their life is that your life may be the only Bible that some people get to read. And then the last thing, and we're done. Remember your allegiance is to the Lord and not a mascot. Remember your allegiance is to the Lord and not a mascot. I'm reminded again, we go back to Isaiah. I love Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, and, and, and God is speaking to the people. And he's just asking some pretty basic questions. And it begins like this, to whom will you compare me? To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all this? The one who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. That's the Lord. Who is comparable to Him? Who is His equal? And this incomparably incomparably great God comes into the world, and with this great power and this mighty strength, He pulls human beings out of death and into life. The greatest act of good, the greatest act of love in the history of the world involved the old rugged cross on a hill far away. And as a disciple of Jesus, he calls us to pick up our crosses and to follow him. In fact, there is no way to be a disciple of Jesus unless you are willing to do that. He says this plainly and bluntly in Luke 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That means that we die to self. That we deny ourselves. It means that we follow in His footsteps in a sacrificial kind of, of love that is dispersed throughout the world. It is an unbelievable, undeniable way to live in the eyes of people who are hungering and thirsting in their soul for that kind of a righteous love to come into their presence. It means that when we are called to die to self, that we are choosing to be content for God to take charge of outcomes. Remember, Jesus voted for you. Jesus is a bipartisan Savior. He died for everyone. And He is the one that calls us into His church, into His body, into His kingdom in such a way that it begins to radiate and to shine out into the community. 
And in the world where we see so, many, so much divisiveness taking place and the meanness and the ugliness and the brutality and the cruelty and the snippiness and, and just the hostility and the, 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 the brutal ways that people talk to each other, in the midst of that, there's a group of people that they may have different ideas about how things should run at ground level. They may, they may have some, some, some very differing ideas about you know, the, the political nature of the world. But what really stands out about them is that where you see this tearing each other apart in the world, in the body of Christ, they grow closer and closer and closer to each other. They're able to love each other with a love that is like no other. And the thing, the very thing that is pulling people apart in the world, that thing is trumped by a cross and a resurrection that transforms human beings because they see themselves in all of the humility of their life as sinners before God who is holy, but in His holiness does the loving, righteous thing and pulls us all together at the foot of the cross of His Son. And we are pulled together in such a way that it becomes this undeniable, it substantiates the claims of the gospel that out of the two there is now one, and it's done because of the cross of Jesus. And that is one of the undeniable beauties of the church, a fellowship of difference. We want to minister to you today in whatever way you might need. It might be prayer or it might be, you know, to sit down and to help you to understand what it means to become a disciple of Jesus, to become a Christian, to become a member of, of God's church. If there's any way that we might help you, the most important thing you can do today is to make that decision for Christ. To have your sins washed away. If there, but if there's any way that we can help you, make that decision. Make it clear. We want you to contact us today or come down to the front as we stand and